Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, starting with Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning once again. If you have been with us for any time this fall, you know we've been in a series called Restoring Sexual Sanity, and we were really looking forward to getting back to the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, apparently, the Lord had other plans for us. Pastor Dave, uh, he's got some pretty serious back problems, so please pray for him. Um, and in, instead, we're going to hear from Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Pastor Bill is going to preach to us. Would you welcome him? Pastor Bill. Thank you, John. Uh, Dave called me yesterday in a panic, feeling really bad, and uh, right during the Cougar game. <clears throat> said, Dave, I can't talk right now. No, Dad, this is really important. I need help. So he knew I would have a sermon, a Christmas sermon, from, from my old files that I could share with you this morning. So this is a sermon some of you old-timers have probably heard, so I'm sorry it's going to be a repeat, but hopefully God will bless it anyway. Let's start with prayer. Let's humble ourselves with prayer. Father, this morning I come to you on my behalf and on behalf of my brothers and sisters, and we come to you, Father. We, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the glory of the Godhead. And we pray this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to love you more, trust you more, obey you more, be more thrilled with you. Father, glorify Christ, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So this is a Christmas sermon, although I didn't originally do it for Christmas, but I'm going to start with a story. About 10 years ago, I was biking, and I like to bike for exercise, for cardio. And, but I'm not a real sophisticated biker. And uh, I took off on my bike ride. I, at that time, I had a 30-year-old Raleigh bicycle that I got for $100 at a, at a garage sale. And I had a pair of Walmart swimming trunks, excuse me, Eddie Bar swimming trunks on that were 15 years old and a kind of a Walmart sweat T-shirt, okay? I mean, I was not, I did not look like I was going to be doing the Tour de France. And I went down the road a short, and I'm 65 at this point in time, okay, so it's, I'm not young either. And I was about 15 pounds heavier than I am right now, 20 pounds heavier. 
And so I went down the road about two miles and I got a flat tire and I'm not very mechanical. So I pulled out to the side of the road. I hate flat tires. I really hate flat tires. And I pulled off to the side of the road to try and fix this flat tire. And I'm fumbling around with my tools trying to get it fixed and I'm not having much success. And up rides this guy coming up. I'm on Highway 195. Up, up, up rides this young man, about 35, on a $5,000 bicycle. I mean, he was, this guy was chiseled, okay? He was a 35, he didn't have one ounce of body fat anywhere, muscles bulging, tanned. Uh, he, he, had a, he had a really expensive bike outfit on. It looked like he was gonna be in the Tour de France. And he was really nice, and he said, hey, can I help you? And I said, well, yeah, I'm having problems getting this tire fixed. Oh, he said, I can fix it real quick. And he whips out of his, his pocket this really expensive toolkit and immediately fixes my tire. So I'm kind, of, I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm kind of standing there thinking, I'm, I'm intimidated is what I am, really intimidated, okay? So he, he says to me, how far are you going? Oh, I said, I'm, I'm going about 15 miles. I was exaggerating because I was feeling <laughs> so intimidated. I said, how about you? How far are you going? He says, I'm going 80 miles today. It's a short ride for me today. I'm getting ready for a race that I'm going to be in next week. Oh, okay. So we get on our bikes. He go, we're, it's uphill. He takes off. He's gone. He's, he's out. Of, and I was kind of glad when he was gone because I was feeling really intimidated, okay? So I, I ride up the hill. I take a right on Paradise Road, and I'm going. I can see off in the distance another bicyclist, maybe a mile down the road. They weren't going very fast, so I gradually caught up with them, and as I came up, it was a couple, and they were older. They were overweight, and they were on these one-speed bikes with the big fat tires, you know, and they were going down the road about five miles an hour. So I came up behind them, and I just went right around them, and as I went around them, I thought, this is terrible. In my heart, I kind of thought, I'm so much better than you are. That's what I thought. I hate to admit it. But that's what I thought, that's what went through my mind. I noticed the conflicting deals here. And maybe a block farther down the road, the Holy Spirit just brought the most amazing conviction to me. I mean, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Here were the two expressions of pride. First, being intimidated by the first biker. I wanted to be like him and I wasn't. I wanted to be something that I wasn't. So I felt intimidated. I wasn't at rest with myself, at peace with myself. I, I was comparing myself to him and wanting to be him. And I wasn't, and feeling like he was looking down on me, which he probably was, because he's a sinner like I am. And then the second expression of pride was when I came up along the other bi bicyclists and I looked down on them as I went around them. That's the great sin, brothers and sisters. That's not a small sin, it's a really big sin. We all have it. It's at work in us all the time, and God hates that sin, that attitude that comes out of us, okay? So, I just witnessed two profound symptoms of the besetting sin of pride in my heart. The first was the feeling of intimidation. The second was even worse. It was the condescending attitude that walled up in my heart as I passed the two overweight cyclists. Pride is a problem. We are born with original sin, Original sin sources in Adam. Pride is the heart, core, and soul of this sin. It affects us constantly. Most of the time, we are not aware of its presence. That's the tragedy. 
Most of the time, pride is working in us, and because we're proud, we can't sense or feel our pride. We're blinded to our own pride. The serpent told Eve that when she ate of the forbidden fruit, she would be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, just heard about, side note, Mormons believe that we will someday be gods. And that's the first clue that that religion is from the serpent, okay? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God judged Adam by giving him up to that delusion. In other words, Adam and Eve walked away from that sin, deluded into thinking that they could be like God, that they could compete with God. Pride, the corruption at the heart of original sin, is the deceit that we really are God, small g. Pride is the root of all the other sins, impatience, selfishness, boasting, critical speech, adultery, murder, etc., etc. I'm having problems. Heads up, sorry. Pride is also responsible for most of our emotional pain and sorrow. As we saw in my story, pride is the root of insecurity, it's the root of restlessness, it's the root of almost all unhappiness, pride. And the antidote, this is another side note, is gratitude, which is the opposite of pride. So here is the good news. The incarnation saves proud people. It atones for the arrogance of people like you and me. Okay, now if, you, you're, if you're listening to this and thinking to yourself, I'm really glad my spouse is hearing this because they need to be humbled, then you're in trouble, okay? Or I wish my kids could hear this or something. That means you have a problem with pride because the first symptom of pride is we don't think we're proud because pride is, is a spiritual form of spiritual blindness. The incarnation saves proud people. It atones for our arrogance. We'll come back to this in a few moments. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. So let me give you some background about the incarnation. The incarnation is not a doctrine that anyone would dream up. And that is the first clue to us that this is something from out, out, of, the, out of this planet, something external to us. Because when men make up religions, this is not what they make up. Many men have claimed to be God. Think of the Egyptian pharaohs, Caesar, Alexander the Great, uh, men like Hitler, Stalin, all these people. Many men have claimed to be God, but the incarnation is the truth that God descended to become man. This is counterintuitive. I, mean, I don't know if you've really thought hard about this, but this is so foreign to the world we live in. God descended and became small, small, small. We are always ascending to become bigger, bigger, bigger because we're proud and arrogant. And so through the incarnation, God is showing us what the divine life looks like. To appreciate the incarnation, we must think in terms of God's infinity. Psalm 145 verse three reads, God's greatness is unsearchable. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, in my notes, I've got underlined a drop, first, 
a drop from a bucket. That's very small, isn't it? But then he says, no, 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 dust on the scales. What does, dust, what does dust do to scales? Nothing. It doesn't move the scales at all, does it? And finally, he says, no, no, all the nations are less than nothing and emptiness compared to God. What is less than nothing and emptiness? It's kind of hard to describe anything less important or significant than that. But we are not emptiness. We are flesh and blood, all seven billion of us. So why did Isaiah write this? He knows that we are finite, and he knows that God is infinite. That word infinite carries a load of meaning. He also knows that anything finite is almost meaningless compared to something that's infinite. You take our whole universe, which is finite, and set it next to God, and as God gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that continues getting bigger and bigger and bigger to infinity, the universe by comparison gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and pretty soon the whole universe becomes nothing and less than nothing. Infinity. God is infinite. That's axiomatic to Christian theology. To the degree that sin becomes bitter, grace will become sweet, the Puritans used to say. And to the degree that we see ourselves for who we really are, the incarnation becomes utterly sweet. Christmas becomes sweet. Christmas becomes astounding. It is because we think so highly of ourselves that the incarnation has such a small impact upon us. It follows from the above that Christ's descent was an infinite emptying because he came, he's, if he's infinite, he came down an infinite distance. And now here we're, we're talking about stuff that we can't even understand. It's way beyond us. And that is why Paul calls Christ's love in Ephesians 3, love that surpasses knowledge. And we'll spend eternity since God is infinite and his love is infinite and his greatness is infinite, we'll spend eternity never exhausting it, the knowledge of it. Here's how John Flavel, one of the great 17th century Puritan preachers, grappled with this truth. For the sun to fall from its sphere and be degraded into a wandering atom. For an angel to be turned out of heaven and be converted into a silly fly or worm had been no such great abasement, for they were but creatures before, and so they would abide still though in an inferior order or species of creatures. The distance betwixt the highest and lowest species of creatures is but a finite distance. The angel and the worm dwell not so far apart. But for the infinite glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. The distance between God and the highest order of creatures is an infinite distance. John Flavel, a great man. Why did Christ descend then an infinite distance? He descended an infinite distance to atone for our sins because our sins were infinitely serious in God's sight. See, sin is measured based upon who we sin against. If, if, if an ant crawls across the stage and I step on it, you don't care, do you? It was an ant. But if my dog, if I take out my 22 and shoot your dog, well, that's a different story. Now people are going to get upset. I might even be in trouble with the law because the dog is much more important than the ant. 
And if I kill my wife or another human being, now I'm, it's capital punishment because the, the nature of the crime or the severity of the crime is measured by who I've sinned against. In God's case, we've sinned against infinity. And so our sins are infinitely serious. And so it took an infinitely great sacrifice to atone for sins which were infinitely serious. This is fundamental to Christian thinking. And this is why if Jesus wasn't God, we're not saved. Because if Jesus wasn't God, he wasn't infinite and our sins aren't atoned for. Because it requires to balance the scales of justice. It requires a sacrifice of infinite value to balance the scales for my sins, which are infinitely serious. Now I know you don't think about your sin that way. And I'm just thinking about that sin of that condescending attitude I had towards the other biker would put me in hell forever. Do you understand how serious that is? And so Jesus, God is love. God's love surpasses knowledge. God has designed an atonement that would balance the scales of justice. So our main point this morning is this. Christ took the humbling that we deserve so that we might get the exaltation that he deserves. I want to say that again. Christ took the humbling that we deserve so that we could get the exaltation that he deserves. Now, I want to read Philippians 2 again, which describes this for us. It describes us in seven steps Jesus came down in his humbling. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying to us, think like God thinks. Have the, have, have the mindset uh, that God has. Look at the world as God looks at it. Feel about things as God feels. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The word there in Greek is the word slave. Doulos, but it's translated servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's go through those seven steps down. The first one is he did not grasp for equality. Verse six tells us that although Jesus was equal with God, he did not grasp for equality with God. This is how I related to the fit cyclist, the guy that had all the fancy equipment. that fixed my tire. In my heart, I was grasping for equality. Really, I would have liked to have been superior to him. I would have liked to have been saying, you know, I'm doing 150 miles today, and I've got a $10,000 bike rather than a $5,000 bike. That was really what I, I wanted, and that's what you want as well, I'm sure, most of the time. But Jesus did just the opposite. To a rights-infatuated culture, this is almost incomprehensible. He did not grasp for equality. He, he had a right to be equal. He was God, equal with God the Father. But Jesus put aside his equality, his right to be equal. He laid it aside and said, the Father says, we need to atone for sinful humanity. Their sins are infinite. Only an infinite sacrifice can balance the scales of justice. You're infinite. Would you do the deed? Jesus says, I will do it because I'm humble. He put aside his grasp for equality. Just, just apply this to your marriage for a moment. Think of all the times when 
the text before this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, do not consider others more important than yourself, or consider others more important than yourself. See, that's what Jesus did here. That's the nature of humility, is it considers my spouse more important than myself. I'm not grasping for equality with my spouse. I'm lifting my spouse up and making my spouse more important than me. I'm putting myself down. I'm lifting my spouse up. If you and your spouse both do this in your marriage on a daily basis, you will have a heavenly marriage. But it's the failure to do this, which is all of us, isn't it, including me, many times, that causes all our grief and problems and troubles in our marriage. You know, we don't like the way our spouse thinks. We don't like the way our spouse does this. We don't like the way our spouse does that. Rather than getting irritated with our spouse because of these things, if we just said, I'm going to make my spouse's way of doing things more important than my way of doing things. I'm going to consider them more important than myself. That's, see, that's what Jesus does here in this text. He does not grasp for equality. Secondly, he empties himself. Verse 7 says that he emptied himself. By taking a human nature, he emptied himself of the benefits and rewards of divinity. Now, he doesn't empty himself of divinity. He can't quit being God, but he empties himself of the perks and benefits of divinity. So he's emptied himself of omnipotence, all power, and strengthened himself with weakness. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, one of the most important texts in the Bible. He who is omnipotent becomes weak and lets himself be nailed to a cross. That's what the Bible means when Paul says he emptied himself. His human nature emptied itself of omniscience, which is all knowledge. When asked about the timing of his second coming, he said, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Well, how can he say that? He's omniscient, because he laid aside in his humanity the right to omniscience. And his human nature emptied itself of immortality. Excuse me, his divine nature emptied itself of immortality and put on mortality. We'll come back to that in a minute. Number three, so first of all, he did not grasp for equality. He emptied himself of the perks and privileges of divinity. And third, he became his father's slave or servant. Verse seven tells us he took a third step down, he became the father's slave, taking the form of a servant. <coughs> Excuse me. The word translated servant by the ESV, as I mentioned, is the Greek word doulos, the word for a common household slave. Our culture despises slavery, don't we? I mean, there's nothing that bugs us more than slavery. Most of the people throughout history have lived with slavery as just a, a reality in their daily life. Not necessarily racial slavery, as we have had it, have it here in the States, but uh, nations would conquer other nations. They bring back the people and enslave them, make them slaves. We despise that. But Jesus volunteered for slavery. The son can do nothing of his own, Jesus said, but only what he sees the father doing. John chapter 5. And this was not a burden for the son. Rather, Jesus delighted to have it this way. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work, John chapter 4. He loved to be a slave to his father, to do nothing from his own volition, to just do what his father told him day and night. Of course, he had communion with God the Father that we don't have necessarily because he was sinless. Number four, not only, be, not only did he not grasp for equality, not only did he empty himself, not only did he become a slave to his father, but fourthly, he became human. And by the way, all those first three things we mentioned, you have to do that to get into heaven. It's not optional. For you to, to be saved, you have to become a slave to God the Father and obey Him all the time. You have to fulfill the demands of the covenant. Keep the law, the Ten Commandments. And the first one is, no strange gods before me. And, the, and you've had many strange gods before you, haven't you? As I have as well. So this is important. Number four, he became human. He took a four-step down. Verse 7 tells us that he was born in the likeness of men. The creator of all things took a part of his creation, a human body, to himself. And the mystery is that he still has this human body to himself in heaven, and he will have it for eternity. And it's necessary for our salvation. In the creation, wrote the Puritan Thomas Watson, 17th century, man was made in God's image, but in the incarnation, God was made in man's image. An infinite condescension. For God to take to himself something that he created, especially as small and as weak as the human body, is astounding. This was no small humbling, why? Because the infinite condescended to take to himself a finite physical human body, as I mentioned, not temporarily, but forever. Fifthly, he humbled himself by obeying. Like slavery, obedience is an unpopular word in Western culture. We value freedom, autonomy, independence, and self-fulfillment. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm especially guilty of this. But Jesus valued obedience. He valued slavery. He valued dependence. He valued uh, the exact opposite. It was a voluntary slavery, as we mentioned, motivated by joy. Pride motivates disobedience. Humility always motivates obedience. See, whenever I obey God, what I'm saying to God is, God, you are smarter than me. You know better than me. Take, take the lectures, sermons we've had on sexual morality for the last few weeks. God, you know better about what makes people happy sexually. And so, Lord, I understand that if I violate your laws, I will pay a price for it in this life, especially. Now, if I'm a Christian, I won't pay a price in eternity, but I'll pay a price. It will cause pain. And God, because I, you're smarter than me, and I'm just a lowly human being, I'm going to humble myself and submit to you and obey you for two reasons. First of all, it's always to my good. And secondly, it's because I want to honor you and glorify you because you are infinitely great, and I am just a tiny, tiny person. Did you know the Bible calls us worms exactly three times? Job, Psalms, and uh, I can't remember the other place, but it's just three times. Oh, it's in Isaiah. 
Just three times. Now, three is the number in the Bible for emphasis. It's like an exclamation mark behind something. Whenever something is repeated three times, you know it's really important. Three times the Bible calls us worms. Isaiah, Psalms, and Proverbs. I'm, and Isaiah, Isaiah, Psalms, and Job, I'm sorry. We're small. We're not the great people we think we are. Now, we're very important to God because He made us in His image and likeness, but, but uh, in our relationship with God, we are nothing. Pride motivates disobedience. When I disobey God, what I'm really saying is, God, God, I know better than you about this. Or, God, I don't really believe there'll be any consequences to this. I don't, in other words, I don't fear you. I'm going to do my own thing, and I know I can get away with it because you're not really sovereign over things. You don't really control things. You're not really active and involved in my life. So I'm lifting myself up in pride every time I disobey, and I'm humbling myself every time I obey God. Humility motivates obedience. Pride always motivates disobedience. Well, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient, perfectly obedient. And sixthly, not only did he humble himself and become obedient, but he submitted to death. Seventh, death on a cross. Sixth, he submitted to death. I said when we started that he, he was immortal, but he put off the privilege of immortality and clothed himself in mortality. God the Father asked him to die, to atone for our sins. And because Jesus had taken the posture of a slave, he unhesitatingly said, I delight to do your will. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. What's the big deal, you ask? Doesn't everybody die? We die, yes, because we are sinners. That was God's threat. In Genesis, on the day you eat of it, he told Adam, you will die, spiritually and ultimately physically. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us, the wages of sin are death. However, Jesus was and is the sinless Son of God. Therefore, he was immortal. He would have never died. He, he was born sinless. The penalty of death was not upon him. He would have never died. But he agreed to take our sin upon himself. And I'm speaking about a great mystery here that we don't know, know all the details about, but Christ agreed to take our sin upon himself. And when he did, he became mortal. And he had to experience, he was able to experience the horror of death in our place, which he never would have done had he not been humble. Not only did he die, number seven, he died on a cross. Um, he submitted to the most horrible form of capital punishment ever invented by humanity. He submitted to death on a cross naked. You know, the Old Testament Psalms talk about how God is clothed in magnificence, clothed in glory, clothed in light, robed in light, the Psalms tell us. But on the cross, Jesus was robed naked. No clothing, nothing. Uh, people were always crucified naked in the first century as a form of humiliation. He died in our place. So Jesus' seven steps down was an infinite humbling. As we have noted, the distance between something finite and something infinite is by definition infinite. It's immeasurable. Jesus' status, his glory, and his majesty were and are infinite. 
He left all this to enter our world. It was an infinite humbling. So far we have said that we need a great salvation, one that will atone for our pride, which is the source of all of our troubles, our pride that saturates every cell of our being. I made it my ambition to be equal to or better than that fit cyclist that came to my rescue, and then I looked down on the slow, overweight, aged cyclist. The incarnation was the exact opposite. God's son made it his ambition to travel an infinite distance down. He renounced his equality with God. He became a man. Jesus descended, compared to his divinity, into almost nothingness in order to make God the Father and you and me more important than himself. He voluntarily surrendered greatness and made us more important than himself. Now, brothers and sisters, we need an atonement, and we need to be made new, because if we went to heaven with our current sinful nature, we would be expelled out of heaven immediately, because we'd be such a foreign object to heaven with the self-centeredness and the pride and the arrogance that saturate us today. That's why the Bible tells us when we see him, we will be like him, for we will be transformed into his image. All sin will be whoosh, gone out of us, and we'll, our natures will be made ready to be in heaven, to love heaven, to enjoy heaven, and to be received by the saints and the angels in heaven. So what, you say? Why is this important to me? Well, the incarnation expresses a pride-conquering humility, and it lays bare, it exposes to us the heart of the divine nature. I hope, you, I hope this, if nothing else, this sermon that just causes worship to well up in your heart for this God that we serve. He's amazing. He's just amazing. And the more we think about who he really is, the more astounding it becomes. You know, if Christianity wasn't true, I'd believe it anyway, because it's such wonderful news about a God that's so wonderful. I mean, it's certainly better than Islam. I just read the book, The Son of Hamas. Have any of you read the book, Son of Hamas? It's on the New York Times bestseller list. It's a guy who was the son of the guy that founded Hamas, true story, who has left Islam to become a Christian. But he said, you know a religion by its fruits. Anyway, I'm, off, I'm sorry, I can't go there. But, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, I gotta wrap this up. <laughs> Pride is the big sin, that's the point we're making. He that exalts himself will be humbled, the Bible tells us over and over again, but he that humbles himself will be exalted. Pride motivates almost all disobedience, just as humility motivates all obedience. This means we've all exalted ourselves. God is infinitely just, and his justice demands a suitable punishment, and that, that we be humbled in hell forever. So our first point is that we deserve of application. We deserve an infinite humbling. Humility is the great virtue that God seeks from us, and pride is the great sin that he hates. Well, here are just a few texts that prove that. Who does God lift up? Psalm 147. God lifts up the humble. What does the Lord require of us? Micah chapter 6. To walk humbly with your God. To whom does the Lord look? Isaiah 66. He looks to the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at his word. How many of us tremble at God's word? 
You want God to look to you, pay attention to you, to love you? That's what God's law requires. None of us are doing that, are we? We need an atonement, and we have a great atonement. That's the good news. Where does God dwell? Isaiah 57 says, He dwells with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. Well, that would exclude all of us, wouldn't it? But for His mercy. Who does God save? Psalm 18, verse 27. God saves a humble people, but the haughty eye He brings down. Who does the Lord avoid? Psalm 138 says, The haughty He knows from afar. Who does God oppose? James chapter 4, four verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. Who does the Lord punish? Proverbs 16.5 says, The arrogant in heart God will punish. And what will God judge on the last day? Read Isaiah 2 this afternoon, the second chapter of Isaiah. Because three times it says this, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on the day of final judgment. That's the main thing God will go after on the day of final judgment is our pride manifesting itself as arrogance, disobedience, self-centeredness, abuse of other people, on and on and on, and disobedience to God. Therefore, an infinite descent by Jesus was necessary to atone for infinitely serious pride. And that brings us to the good news. God saves by uniting us with Christ that is humbling. Father, thank you. See, when we put our faith in Christ, what happens? And I've used this illustration a thousand times, and it's, it's, our, it's like Velcro. Our faith unites us with Christ. Watchman Nee used the example that I really like. He said, it's, imagine you open your Bible up and you put a bookmark in your Bible and you close the Bible back up. The bookmark is in the Bible, isn't it? You can't see it, but it's there. That's what happens. The Bible uses the expression over and over again, we are in Christ. Our faith places us in Christ like that bookmarker is, or like Velcro attaches us to Christ. And so when Jesus came down and made this infinite descent, God considers us to have made it with him. And God considers us to be humble with Christ's humility. And so God then is going to reward us with the reward that Christ gets for being so humble. Therefore, Philippians 2, God, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, because Jesus went down, the, remember the Bible says, he that humbles himself, God will exalt. Jesus humbled himself, God lifted him up, gave him all power and authority, made him the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The mystery of our salvation is our faith unites us with Christ, and we went down with him, and we are gonna get lifted up with him. Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve so that we can be rewarded with the reward that his virtues deserve. And what were his virtues like? He obeyed God the Father perfectly, even unto death, death on a cross. And lastly, the incarnation motivates humility. So not only does this save us, but when we really understand this, we want to imitate Christ. Do you feel like you'd like to imitate Christ today? Anybody besides me? 
No hands? Okay, a few of you. Hopefully, you're seeing this, you're feeling this in your heart. The Holy Spirit's communicating this to you, and you're saying, I want to be like this. I want to be fit for heaven. I want to glorify God by being like him. I want to go down, down, down so that God can lift me up, up, up. Now, you know, you've, it's easy to say this in a sermon. It's easy to hear it, but the proof of the pudding is we struggle with this, don't we? All of us. We feel left out. We feel ignored. We feel uh, marginalized. We feel like nobody likes us. And all that's because we want to be number one. We're not good at going down. I'm not good at going down. I can tell you, I, I want to do this. I try to do it, but I find in my heart and my life, sin resisting me constantly. And you find that too. But the proof that you're born again is you want to do this. You want to live like this. If you're listening to this and saying, ah, who would be crazy enough to live like this? Then you don't belong to Christ. And you need to belong to him. You need a change of nature. But if you're listening to this and you're saying, yeah, I want to do this, then that's a good sign. You'll find all kinds of resistance in yourself to this, but the fact that you want to do it means you've, you're sharing in the divine nature because this is what the divine nature is like. The first place to apply this sermon is in your family, with your spouse. Consider your spouse more important than yourself. Serve your spouse, have the heart of a servant. Children, consider your parents more important than yourself. The Bible tells children to obey their parents. And so if a child is humble and a child is listening to this, then the first place this will show up in your life is a desire to humble yourself and obey your parents because by obeying your parents, you're obeying God. And parents, it's really important for you to discipline the bejeebers out of your children when they don't. Why? Because God will judge them if you don't discipline them. If, if you let them go through life exalting themselves, what are you going to force God to do to judge them? Because God humbles everyone that exalts himself. So when your children are exalting themselves in disobedience and you don't discipline them, you're bringing them under God's judgment. Don't do that. This is old-fashioned teaching, isn't it? But it's always relevant. This is an application. So let's close with prayer. Father, we are an arrogant, self-centered people. We confess that to you. We deserve to be humbled forever in hell. But the measure of your love for us is this. Your son made an infinite descent into humiliation. He did this to atone for our pride, which is infinitely serious in your sight. And now you've imputed Christ's humility to us. And on the basis of that humility, someday you will exalt us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We are and will be forever eternally grateful for your Son's incarnation and our participation in it through faith. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we draw near to the Lord's table to celebrate the communion of the, of the body and the